Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man to the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 457, it is June 17th, 2010. It is a Thursday. And we're going to take a mile-high view today of putting your household in order. I think I, I kicked a lot of people in the ash yesterday uh, with making a choice about what you're going to do with the rest of your life from a professional or business standpoint. No, that wasn't a typical survival topic. So I thought another change of pace would be to go right back into the most basic of basics and say, what do we do if um, we're sitting around looking at our house and going, we're just not prepared enough, what do we do? What, what kind of punch list can we go through and uh, at least make sure that we've got that base uh, taken care of? If we're a grasshopper sitting out in the field, how do we turn the house into an ant mound? And if we already have sort of an ant mound, how do we go through and tighten it up and make sure that it's a fortified ant mound instead of a disorganized ant mound? Because I'll be honest with you, I got a lot of disorganization around me at all times. If it wasn't for my wife, um, I'd never be able to find anything around here. Uh, so we kind of play off each other. Maybe uh, in your household you'll have the same thing. One spouse is a little bit more organized than the other. Usually the creative thinker is the one that's not so organized. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic about today's show. And as I was putting this together, I realized something. There's a huge affinity for the ant around here. You know, we even have ant hats in the gear shop. And uh, we have a lot of people with different little ant, you know, uh, we call logos and badges and stuff like that on the forum. Everybody loves the ant. They love the ant because the ant is such a symbol of prepping. And the way the ant kind of became the unofficial mascot of TSP, with, of course, Val being the survival guy with the headphones or the earmuffs or whatever you want them to be in our logo, the ant kind of became the number two logo, and it's whatever anybody decides to make the ant look like. That started because I used to tell a story around here a lot of times called The Ant and the Grasshopper. You may remember this story. It comes from a guy named Aesop. He was a pretty wise old dude. He put these fables together to teach people a lesson. And uh, we use them for kids today. And I guess they were for, from kids at the time of Aesop. But they really were for society as a whole to learn. Because society was beginning to evolve at that point. You start to, you know, as soon as society evolves, people start to depend on society and its systems more than they do themselves. The best story, in my opinion, Aesop ever did was The Ant and the Grasshopper. So I'd like to tell you the original story of the Aesop fable in brief today, the way my grandfather used to tell me. And my grandfather used to sit me down and he used to say, You know why we have a garden? I'll tell you why. 
because we're ants. And he'd go on from there and he'd say, look, here's what happened. One day there was an ant, or a bunch of ants, and they were, you know, gathering all their food, taking it back to the little hole in the ground, and they passed this grasshopper in the field, and the grasshopper says to them, hey, what are you guys doing? Why are you working so hard? There's so much stuff here. It's great. Just party and have fun like me. And the ants say to the grasshopper, dude, winter's coming. If you don't put something away for winter, winter's going to come and you're going to freeze to death and you're going to starve to death and you're going to die. And the ant says, oh, you're crazy. Look how beautiful everything is. The ants go on about their business and the grasshopper goes on about his business. Well, one day the field of green starts to turn into a field of brown and it starts to get less and less available as far as you know food for the grasshopper but there's still stuff to get by on and the cool air actually feels good compared to the uh, summer heat as they begin to move into fall and the ants start working harder and harder and harder than ever before and the grasshopper goes this is what you were worried about there's plenty left And it feels beautiful out. That wind is nice. They say, you don't understand. That means it's about to be really, really cold and really, really miserable. And there's going to be snow. You're not even going to be able to see the food. And the food's going to be gone anyway. And the grasshopper laughed. One day he woke up and a few snowflakes fell through the air. And the last bit of the food that he had was gone. And he looked at the ant mound and they closed their little ant door and went down underground. And then the snow began to fly, and he began to shiver. And he goes to the ant's door, and he knocks. Not that ants really have doors, right? But in the story, they do. And the ants come to the door and go, Yes, can we help you? And the grasshopper goes, You were right. I was wrong. I'm freezing, and I'm starving. Please take me in. And the ants say, We warned you. There's no room for you here. And they close the door. And the grasshopper wanders out into the snow, and he dies. And I get so pissed off every time there's a retelling of that story. And please don't send me the freaking email about Jesse Jackson and Kermit the Frog. Please don't send I've gotten that ten times a day for two years. I'm, I don't need that email anymore. Please stop it. Okay? But when we change the story for real, in our books and in our stories, where we tell the children... See, and then the ants took the grasshopper inside, and they all shared. And the grasshopper learned his lesson. And from then, no, he died. He died because he's a freaking grasshopper. Grasshoppers die every year by the millions. That's the point. That's the lesson. That's why your house has to be in order. That's why you have to act like an ant, not a grasshopper. And when we lie to our children and we tell them the grasshopper changed, we screw them up. And then they grow up into people that you talk to and go, hey, you know what, maybe we should be prepared. There's some bad stuff going on out there. Like, what are you talking about? They're grasshoppers. You can't save a grasshopper. The only thing you can do is create a conversion process where the grasshopper becomes an ant. You want the real truth? What even Aesop didn't say? There was a bunch of ants, and they were just closing up the nest for the, for the winter to go dormant and go underground and live off of what they had. And a grasshopper came to the door. You know what they would do? They would grab them in their little ant jaws, tear them into pieces, haul them down in a hole, and eat them. Because ants eat grasshoppers. That's the real story. And that's another metaphor for life. We need to be understanding this. And that's why we need to put our households in order. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I just thought maybe I'd set the mood. And, you know, I haven't told the story for about six months. And every once in a while I need to do that because we do have an affinity for it here, right? So if we're going to get our households in order, 
I think a lot of us, especially if you listen to this show and you're into this stuff, you probably have done a lot of things already. And even if you haven't, even if you're new, if somebody turns you on to this and you turned on the TV and you like looked at the oil spill and you looked at the volcano in Iceland and you went, that's not that bad. And then you thought about the pandemic threat that we had. It turned out to be nothing, but it was a threat. And it made you think and it gave you that sick feeling in your stomach and you're just waking up to this. And you're going, maybe, maybe I need to do something. Maybe I don't need to have a bunker somewhere out in the middle of the wilderness like this popular image, but maybe what these modern survivalists are talking about makes a lot of sense. Maybe it's a better way to live. You might actually have more assets and resources in your home than you realize. So what I learned in the military is the very first thing you're going to do if you're going to make an assessment of what a unit or what a platoon or what a squad or what an individual soldier at any level from the man up to the brigade is going to do first, you inventory what you have. You assess what you have. So that's what I'm going to tell you to do. The first thing you need to do is go through your home and look at everything you have. Go through your pantry and make a determination. The power went out and we lost the food in the refrigerator and freezer. or We used it up as quick as we could. Once that was gone, how long could we live on this? How many calories are in our pantry on a daily basis? You might find there's a week or two in there. You might find that, in general, just the way you shop and the way you organize your pantry, that that's how much is in there. Does that mean you're good? No, but it means you're better off than somebody that's got a day or two. It also means you've formed a baseline and you can understand where you're going to grow to from there. And you've also, just by doing that inventory, just by going through there, getting your calories, getting your fat, carbohydrates, and protein, and making an assessment of how long that would last you, you've now taught yourself how to assess your food supply as you increase it. Everything you need to know has been done with a simple math and division problem. Number of people, number of calories, calories per day, number of days forward, done. And at that point, every time you add to your pantry, you just keep a little notebook inside the door of your pantry. Uh, or if you keep them, you start going beyond the pantry and have some bins or something like that or buckets or whatever you do it in. You just keep running the total. That's how simple it is. It doesn't have to be hard. Now... We're not going to go deep into food storage. There's things that get bland and boring and things you need to do to enhance that, but you've got the basics right there. You also need to go through, how many flashlights do you have? Where do you keep them? You know, What do you have that's usable if the power goes out? How's your grill? Do you have a grill? Uh, do you have propane? Do you have extra tanks? How many tanks do you usually have on hand? How many of your extra tanks are generally empty? Do you have a charcoal grill in addition to a propane grill or in, in replacement of? If so, how much charcoal do you normally have on hand? How much lighter fluid? How can you make flame? Everything. Just get a great big notebook and just start writing it down. You know? Go get yourself a, you know, one of five subject ones or a couple bucks, you know, and divide it up into, uh, you know, food. Uh, energy, whatever works for you, but get an assessment. As soon as you get that assessment, what will happen is you'll realize where all the holes are. If you really want to know where all the holes are, about 9.30 at night when it's dark, go outside, poof, shut the main breaker off, and then imagine that the water won't come out of the faucets and ask yourself, what will we do now? And start adding to your weaknesses, because you'll know them like that. It's all it'll take. And you might as well do it yourself. Give yourself an hour like that. Tell the family you're going to do it, Dad, or they're going to be really pissed, and they're not going to get involved with this. They're going to be angry with you, and they're going to fight you. So say, we're going to run up. And make sure it's a night when there's not that special show on at 9 o'clock. Right? You're trying to get buy-in here. 
I know that it could go wrong when that special show comes on. You might have some spoiled kids, but one step at a time for everybody. Do it for an hour. You'll find so many things that you're missing that way. But get that inventory. You also need, and I really suggest this is a separate notebook because it's a separate concept, and you, this needs to be a notebook that just basically sits on the kitchen counter. And this is a journal of items used out of the kitchen on a regular basis. You make a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, I think it's crap and it doesn't belong in your house and it's terrible for you. But if you eat it, you eat it fine. Write down, one box Kraft macaroni and cheese. Okay? You pull out a can of wolf chili, one can wolf chili. Date, one can, blah, blah, blah. When you get to the next day, make a new heading. Now the date is, you know, June 16th. Start writing down what you use. Just keep that inventory. Do that for about two weeks to a month. You'll know the food that goes through your house. You'll be perfectly prepared to begin to start storing some extra food. To eat what you store, store what you eat thing. And at that point, and I think even before, because you'll be able to figure this out really quick, is commit to what Ron Hood calls copy canning. I've always just said, eat what you store, store what you eat. But I really like Ron's way of breaking it down, Ron and Karen's way of breaking it down, where they talk about, if I use one can of chunky beef soup, then the next time I go to the store, instead of buying one can of chunky beef soup, I just buy two. And if I use one can of Spam, I think that's crap too. It stores well, but God, I hate it. But if you like it and you use one can of Spam, the next time you go to the store, buy two cans of Spam. And build your pantry out that way. Just do that. If you'll just do that, two months from now, if you had to go a week or two without food, you won't give a damn. It's that simple to get at least that much sustainability underneath you. I also think that one of the very first things you need to put together is a blackout kit. Note, I did not say a bug-out kit. I'm not even going to talk about bug-out kits today uh, or, 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 or bug-in kits or anything like that. We're going to stay mile high, way, way up today on this. But a blackout kit, one of the biggest problems that we have with modern society and failures is the electrical grid. And it can be anything. It could be like I had the other day. It just happened to be during the day when it wasn't that big a deal. A couple uh, houses over, they're putting in some new cabling, some ass clouds are drilling underground. Boom, right through the electrical main. Bam, goes the transformer. No power for about four hours. It could be an ass clown driving down the street drunk that hits a pole. It can be an electrical storm that strikes and puts down the power. It could be a huge windstorm. Uh, in some parts of the country, it's simply because you go to a peak power usage. We had power out in Arkansas this winter, and we had to rely on the fireplace for heating and some other things like that. And do you know why the power went out? There was no storm. There was no rain. It went down to 7 degrees. Now, I know that there's people like sitting up in Montana going, so it goes down to 7 degrees sometimes in May here. Tells your problem. Uh, it doesn't go down to 7 degrees in Arkansas very often. Uh, it went down to 7 degrees, and we had highs in the 20s. And uh, it went down to, I think, like 9 degrees the night before that. So the electricity, most people in the area, since it doesn't usually get that cold there, they don't go to things like coal furnaces or oil furnaces or propane to save money because it's actually far less expensive to heat your house with electricity in Arkansas in the winter than it is to cool it in the summer. So there's usually not that peak demand. So all it was, all this shut the power down, was everybody turning the thermostat up to 70 degrees to keep their houses warm. And it just created a rolling blackout, basically, until they rebalanced some things and, and, and solved the problem the next day. There you go. I mean, that was just a typical overuse. 
So there's so many things that can put the lights out. So that's one of the things that you need to be most prepared for. Because whether it's the big disaster or the little disaster, it's a commonality. It's a huge commonality. So your blackout kit should have candles, safe candles, folks. Um, you can go to stores now like Walmart and even the grocery stores. They have these candles that come in a jar, nice solid base, candles below the lip of the jar. They don't like, you know, they say they smell good. They don't smell like my wife loves the Yankee candles and the soy candles because they make the house smell nice. They, they kind of fall flat on that. But they're like a dollar a candle. So if you pick up 20 of those for 20 bucks, and you have those, you've got something. Throw some baby food jars in there and a bunch of tea lights. You can buy a huge bag of tea lights for like 5 bucks at the hobby store. Something that makes them safe, though, because it's a great way to extend your lighting capability without drawing down on batteries. Flashlights, yes. Extra batteries, yes. Absolutely. Emergency radio that can be cranked up. I like the Grundigs. Um... I'm not going to say anything about Kato's, but if you watch my review of it, I thought it was a piece of crap. But I like the Grundigs for a backup radio, something can be cranked. Um, LED lanterns are a great backup light source. All that stuff needs to go there, be together in one place. You also might want to keep in there, uh, in fact, I definitely advise you to keep both lighters and matches in your blackout kit. Because uh, that will be usable not just for lighting your candles, but maybe lighting your grill. Because if your electricity is out and you don't have gas uh, for your for your oven or your stove, you may be using your grill or camping stoves or things like that. Probably not a bad idea to go out and buy just one of those cheap little butane camping stoves, even if you have them in other places for backpacking and all. But just a little cheap Coleman they sell for about like $14 at Walmart. And maybe two canisters of the butane mixed fuel. Put that in your blackout kit. At least you can make coffee, you can heat up soup, do things like that. Put it, and we use kind of, it almost looks like an old milk crate, but it's like a soft-sided one. That's where our blackout is. It's up on the sh shelf above the washer and dryer. We know exactly where it is. A couple lantern flashlights as well. Power goes out, no problem. We go get that stuff, and we can then light the house if it's dark out, and we can go and put the generator, and we can do anything else we want to do, run off the backup system that we have. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but when it's pitch dark all of a sudden, we know right where to go to get to that kit. The next thing I think you should do, though, and this is really part of the blackout kit, but I kind of broke it out separately, is install some emergency lighting. Uh, a lot of people would think, well, installing emergency lighting would be expensive. I mean, that's like running extra wires and batteries and all things like that. Not anymore. There's a there's a product out now. A lot of people make them. They call them power failure lights. And what they look like is they look like a nightlight. And they, what they do is you plug them into a wall. And they look like a little nightlight slash flashlight. And I have some from Sylvania, and there's some other great ones out there. I even have a YouTube video I'll link to today uh, where I review uh, the, the Sylvania model. And what you do is you plug them into the wall, and you set the little selector switch on it to auto. And uh, if you want, you can just select it to, to basically on, and that'll make it like a nightlight where if the lights are dim, it'll come on. If you set it to auto, what'll happen is if the power fails, it'll come on. So if you plug 10 of these, and they sell for anywhere between $8 to $10 a piece, so we're talking about an investment of maybe uh, 30 bucks here to, to get four of them, $30 to $40, and you put one uh, in two strategic areas, like in, in downstairs of your house, or if you have uh, a one-level house, maybe one in the hallway and one in each bedroom, and kind of stretch these things throughout the house in the main thoroughfares, power goes out, boom, lights come on. Now, can you read a book? No. 
but you can you know, stub your toe, and you can easily make your way to get what? Your blackout kit. The other cool thing about these things is they usually have an LED flashlight on one side. Uh, get about an hour of life with that flashlight on continuously with them. Uh, you pull them out of the wall, you turn them on, and they become a flashlight. So as long as you're close enough to one to find one, you grab it, turn it on, go to the blackout kit. Power goes out, you need to go outside and get your generator, and uh, you got maybe somebody else in the family getting the blackout kit, setting up a few candles or whatever, and you need to go outside. Instead of going to get the flashlight, you grab one out of the wall and go outside, take care of whatever you need to do. Because sometimes power goes out, it's a breaker. It's nice to be able to just grab and go. So I have found these things to be extremely useful. One of the best things I've added to our home. I also believe you should have some sort of a backup power system. Uh, I re recently talked about the Wagon Power Dome EX. It is a great product. I'll link to it again from today's show notes. Um, it's, uh, it's an awesome little product. I'm going to be doing a review of it to see how much battery life it has, how much length and time you actually get out of running appliances with it. It's not really a great appliance runner, but... Um, it's an additional light source, it's an additional radio, you can run AC off of it, and it can be recharged in your vehicle. So I think it makes a lot of sense. It also jump starts vehicles, so, uh, and it also has a 12 VDC power uh, outlet on it, and uh, two AC power outlets on it. So I think that, and an air compressor. So it becomes a backup power source that can really should live in your car, as far as I'm concerned. But in a power outage, hey, you know what? If it's hot out, the fact that you can... Maybe not run much off it, but just take a little fan and run a box fan on the damn thing for a few hours until the power comes back on. When it's 150 degrees in, in Texas right now, it's not really 150 degrees. If you guys get the point, nice little extra to have. I do think going beyond that, though, it makes sense to put together a basic uh, backup uh, power battery system. A couple good solid marine batteries hooked up. 12 volts, run to a power inverter, uh, and a charger and a charge controller so that they don't overcharge. You plug that into the wall, let that trickle charge off of your grid, you're good to go. If you want to add solar panels to it and things like that for long-term outages, great idea. But start out with the backup system that just plugs into the wall because that's the easy thing to do. And you need it before you have anything to charge with those solar panels anyway. So uh, that's my thought there on high-level backup power. You need a documentation package. If you do not have one, please, for the love of God, make one this week. Stop putting it off. Stop looking at it as something that's mundane. It's free. You need a printer and ink for this. In your documentation package, you need the following. The name and contact information of everybody you would ever need to get in touch with, including things like financial institutions and, and account numbers and things like that. If you're concerned about the numbers getting into the wrong hands once the stuff is printed off or online, use a simple what I call number off encryption. And that means that you set a number off. And you set it however you want. It could be positive to or negative to. If the number was 111 and you were using a positive to number off, the number would become what? 333. And as long as you and everybody else in the household knows that, you'll be able to decipher all those numbers. Now, would this stand up to Army cryptologists? No. But it'll, outsource, you know, it'll outsmart the average scumbag. 
And when the guy tries to go to your bank using your name with the number being completely wrong, he's likely to get caught. He's not going to get 20 chances to figure out what exactly you've done. So I'm a big fan of number off, simple number off encryption. Just don't know anywhere what you've done. Make it known by the family. Everybody in the family that would ever need to rely on that package knows what the number off encryption is. It's plus four, minus three, plus one. Doesn't matter. Just do something to safeguard anything that's a critical number. And it really makes sense to do it with all the numbers. Here's another thing. If you add a zero to most bank account numbers and break them up with dashes, they look like phone numbers. So, again, you just need to make sure that anybody who might rely on those knows what's been done. But the other thing that needs to be in that documentation package is maps. Um, it probably makes sense to get a good state map and a good national map, the fold-up ones that you know give you fits when you're in the car. Put those into each documentation package. But additionally... Print out evacuation routes on Google Maps. My belief in redundancy is threes. Three places you can go and three ways to get to each place. You probably have a primary place. But I want those in all your documentation packages and I want a mirror, pa I want this done with, um, I want you to do this on a computer because every time you make a change, I want you to print new copies for every place you keep this so that if you and your wife are in two different places and something really bad has happened and she's freaking out or he's freaking out, whoever's freaking out, the other person can say, Honey, honey, stop. Same with the teenage kids that are driving. Stop. It's okay. Go to page six. Okay, page six, right? Okay, we're going to take route alpha. That's what I call it, but route A, route one, whatever. And we're all going to meet at rally point one. Okay? So, where you are right now, how do you, do you see how you get to that? Yes, I do. Okay, fine. Now, see, if everything's not the same, if everything's not uniform, if we're not looking at the exact same thing at the exact same time, that conversation doesn't go that way. I don't remember. And other things like, I'm scared. I, what's going on? Is it going to be okay? Where are you? See, when you put commonality into the place, It becomes centering. The other thing you need to have in there are things like hotels that you would call. When there's a disaster approaching where there's a long time to evacuate, and I don't mean the end of the world as we know it. You're not going to be able to hang out at Courtyard at Marriott if the entire electrical grid across the United States fails due to an EMP attack. We all understand that. But if there's a hurricane coming and you live in a coastal city, trucking 250 miles inland and grabbing a hotel, not a bad idea. And everybody else is going to do it too. So if you have a few places picked out in advance, being able, as soon as you make the, the decision to go, to pick the documentation package, open it up, make that phone call, make that reservation, you get in and other people don't. Because disasters and survival is not always about the end of the world as we know it. In fact, we've never had the complete end of the world as we know it. But we've had disasters that disrupt lives on a daily basis. So prepare for those first. Uh, you, if you put that together, you're pretty solid. I won't go any deeper than that because I've done entire shows on it. But documentation package. I believe that you should have at least two weeks to one month of long-term storables. I don't care if they're MREs. I don't care if they're Mountain House. I don't care if they're providing pantry. I don't care what they are. But I'm talking about the real commercial 10-year-plus shelf life. Minimum two weeks month is better, I want more than that for myself, but I'd be okay with that. Because the beauty of that is if you ever lapse, 
on your copy canning, you eat where you store, store where you eat. If you let that fall flat and you end up in a short-term emergency situation, at least there's a two weeks to a month's worth of food that can be kind of put away and forgotten about and maybe used every year you pull out you know, 10% of it and use it and replace it. If you'll do that, you'll safeguard the food for 90% of what can go wrong. It's not enough. For those of you that are going, man, you should have more than a month, Jack. I mean, come on, you're the survivor. Yes, and I do. I'm saying that's a baseline, two weeks to a month. And that's not that expensive to do. You'll think it's expensive, but like most things, it's expensive once. And it can be done over time. A can today, a can next week. By the way, folks, uh, Ready Made Resources, our sponsor, is doing 25% off Mountain House till the end of the month. Check their banner if you need to stock up on some Mountain House. Um, I don't care if it's MREs. I don't care what it is, but at least a minimum 10-year shelf life. And put away two weeks of that. Make a commitment to get that done. Um, I also want to talk a little bit uh, about water. One of the one of the things I never thought of is the water in my water heater. Ron Hood was just on talking about that. I picked it up in his DVD. All you need to do is clean your water heater out. He says once a year. I say clean it out twice a year. It's not hard to do. Um, and you need to install or get a plumber to install for you something called a backflow preventer. Um, in in the line that comes into your water heater. What this will do is if the water fails, the water pressure fails, the water in your water heater will stay in your water heater, where in most situations without it, the water in your water heater will backflow down into the, the, uh, the, the water feed pipe, and then there's no water there. Why do you do this? If you have a 50-gallon water heater and you have a backflow preventer, and the power goes out and the water fails, guess what? You have 50 gallons worth of usable, potable water in your house already, in your water heater, no additional space taken up. And there's a little valve at the bottom, you know, but up, water comes out. 50 gallons of reserve water. Best tasting water in the world? No. Drinkable? Yes. If you have drinking water stored in addition, which you should, at least it's good water for cleaning. Uh, if it's not going to be that long, if you're only going to be a week or less without water, flushing toilets, right? Uh, I do think another thing you might want to consider wasn't on my original list, but when I think about this now, a uh, chemical toilet, even if it's just a uh, a few bags, some chemicals, a five-gallon bucket, and a toilet seat lid for it. If you're going to be for too long without uh, water, you may run out of water for flushing toilets. Uh, one of the big reasons I'm glad I have a pool. You know, I've got a. I think my pool holds like 27,000 gallons of water. It's a big pool. I can flush toilets for a long time with that. But if you don't have that, it's one of the biggest uh, convenience items you can. We have rain catchment uh, set up in Arkansas. When we were up there about two years ago and lightning struck our well and we were without water pressure for a couple days, having the rain catchment was a big deal. We had plenty of drinking water stored. Uh, but the rain catchment and being able to dump it into a toilet and make the toilet flush? Talk about modern convenience is being appreciated. Right, especially for my wife. I'll go out in the woods. I don't care. Dig a hole. Right? No problem. But in suburbia, how practical is that? What if everybody's doing it? So some chemical toiletry things are probably a good idea to add into this list. I also think you should have a minimum. Again, I'm using the word minimum here a lot. For those of you who will go, it's not enough. Just remember I'm saying minimum. A minimum of 25 gallons of water stored in your household if you have a family of four, which many people do, then call the minimum 50 gallons of water. 
I don't care if you go out and buy seven-gallon uh, jerry cans like they have at Walmart. I don't care if you go out and buy one-gallon water jugs like they have at Walmart for like 60 cents a gallon. Uh, I don't care what you do with that. Uh, I'll tell you another thing with that. People worry about the water jugs because the plastic degrades. And you know what? Buy it. It's cheap. Use five or six gallons a week or a month or whatever because it's cheap. When you're done using it, you can fill the jugs back up and whatever kind of leaching there's been done is, you know, done and put it to the back. Or if you're that concerned, go out and buy another five gallons and just rotate it through and use it every once in a while. Uh, but it's such cheap insurance. The jerry can approach is probably better. You definitely want to add some water filtration uh, as well. Lifesaver is a great product. Berkey is a great product. Because usually it's not that hard to come up with some water from somewhere, but do you really want to drink it? So you put those together and you create a lot of redundancy for yourself. Between boiling, filtration, water harvesting, rain catch, and some level of water stored, you'll probably be able to get by, again, through the majority of situations. Long term, I want something permanent like a well and redundancy for the pump. But getting my household in order, 25 gallons of water, backflow preventer on my water heater, that's another 50. I got 75 gallons. Typical emergency and go straight through it. All right. Um, the next thing I though want to get on is expenses and lifestyle and money and debt. And you knew I couldn't leave it out. There's no way I could leave that out because it's so imperative. There's so many things you're going to want to do with your life going forward once you realize how self-sufficient and self, uh, self-reliant you can become. And there's going to be so many things you're going to want to do for yourself. And you're going to realize that you don't want to work till you're 69 and a half before you stop working full time. And you're going to want a better life and you're not going to be able to do that if we don't take control of your finances. So it has to be one of the first things we look at. So before I tell you to get rid of your debt, the first thing we have to do is we have to control spending. And before I tell you to cut your spending, we have to figure out what you're going to cut. And for me to tell you you don't need this or you shouldn't have that is complete, total, utter bullshit. And every person you listen to that talks about debt and money management that tells you what you shouldn't do and what you shouldn't spend your money on, in my opinion, is completely 100% full of shit with the caveat unless they've spoken to you and helped you analyze your life and then said, these are some things you can cut out. That I'm okay with. But when people get on radio and talk shows and just go, well, you don't need this and you don't need that and you don't need, you know what, shut up. You're trying to run somebody else's life for them. You don't need that, and you don't have to have this. Maybe that person does, or maybe that person wants that, or maybe that person more than can afford that in their life right now. There's just other places they need to curtail. In other words, what I'm saying is, unlike most of society and unlike most people that call themselves experts who I want to smack, I believe that your life is your ship, and you're the freaking captain of your ship, and you should make your own decisions. However, where we lack at that in America is being informed about our decisions. If you look at a military commander, a military commander may make a decision like, we're going to take that hill. But he's not going to make the decision if we're going to take the hill and just stay with that decision and go through the same way over and over again while all his men die unless he's a freaking idiot and should be removed from command. That commander is going to have a group of lieutenants and a group of non-commissioned officers. Maybe if he's a high-level brigade commander or something, he's going to have a couple uh, captains or majors running around underneath him. But he's going to have a group of officers and non-commissioned officers that each have different components of this. And as they're attempting to take the hill, they're going to keep giving him feedback. The enemy is reinforcing the west flank. 
Okay? You can say, well, let's move some of our assets to the east flank, but let's be careful when we do that. Let's evaluate and make sure not being, we're not being tricked by the enemy. And he's going to keep getting feedback. You know, they're going to say, well, they've got a fortification. We need to call in air support. Air support's not available. So the commander says, is artillery available? Not yet, but it can be. Okay, let's, let's change this tactic a little bit. Let's go into kind of a, a, an agreed-upon stalemate here with the enemy uh, by, by holding them in position until we can move artillery closer. And once artillery's in, let them have it. How did the art? Okay, the artillery took out everything except this one spot. We can't reach it with the artillery because of how it's fortified, where it's located. Okay, let's take out everything else. And that commander keeps getting all this feedback. We're running low on ammunition here. These men over here need medical assistance. And that commander makes the decisions and says, do it, but only as he's informed and based on the critical nature of the mission. How important is it for that hill to be taken? A lot of these rules were not followed in Vietnam, if it's making you think of that. Especially if it's making you think of the, the movie Hamburger Hill, which is a pretty damn true story about something that was really dumb. Really, a lot of lives were lost there for nothing. But one followed, that's how a military operation goes down. That's how your life should be with your spending. You should be the commander. You should be the captain of your ship. But you should know there's an iceberg ahead. Or you should know you're taking on water. Right? That's the leak to plug. You need to know these things. And the only way you're going to do that, you think, how the hell is this related to my spending? You're going to journal your spending. You're going to give yourself your own feedback. All you need is yet another notebook. And in that notebook... You're going to write down one Big Mac, 99 cents. One stick of gum, 13.5 I don't care what it is. If you take money out of your pocket, if you pull out a credit card, which you shouldn't have, if you pull out a debit card, if you do anything that spends money other than the basic bills of the house, basic bills of the house, water, sewer, electric, mortgage, insurance. Everything else, phone, cable, you name it. I'm not saying it gets cut. It's an expense. It's a chosen expense. Really hard to live your life today without electricity. You can do it. You can be Amish if you want to, but I call it a necessity. At least for modern living on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay? Cable, not so much. Not saying you shouldn't have it. You just should have it in that journal. And you should look at that journal and you should write down everything. And I mean both partners have to do this in a married family. And the kids have to be part of this. Even if you give them money, you give them money, write down, gave Johnny $20, and then leave room underneath it. Johnny, what would you spend $20 on? Write it all down. Sit the whole family down after about two weeks to a month of this. Go through that journal and look at what you're spending. Notice I haven't told you not to spend money, how to spend your money, where to spend. I have said change nothing. All I've said is write it down. What you'll find, if you do it for a month, First two weeks, you'll probably spend about the same you've always spent. In the second two weeks, you'll start cutting your spending without anybody telling you to. Because as soon as you become aware of what you're doing, you'll start going, ah, I don't really need to do that. Even the kids will. Even if you give them their allowance, the same amount of money or whatever it is, however you, you know, allocate funds to your children, as soon as you just say, look, I'm not judging you, Johnny. What'd you just, what'd you buy? Baseball cards? Okay. Yeah. All right. And you sit down at the end of the month and go, hey, you bought this stuff. Where is it now? Bored with it, ate it, drank it, threw it away, broken. Still have it. Good investment, bad, 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 okay, 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 right? The mental things happen all on their own.
once you do that, you'll figure out what you can cut. And that's why it works. Because now you own it. You're in charge of it. See, this plan is all these things I'm giving you today are designed for you to take control of your life, your way, under your circumstances. So that you own the plan, so you follow the plan, so you do it. Simple, right? And the kids will do it too. And God, when they're 30, when they're 30, folks, when they finally really get it, they start to establish themselves in life, and they look back and instead of having a student debt that's going to be so around so long, they might as well name it and call it a pet. Instead of being deeply in debt to MasterCard and Visa, instead of having a car that they have a house payment against, they're going to thank you. They're going to thank you for teaching these, these things to them and not letting them go out into that me generation world and just ruin their lives before they even get started. So do it for them as much as for yourself. And once you get the spending under control, good on a debt elimination plan. Start paying off the debt. I won't get into debt snowball or anything about the mechanics behind it. I'm just saying get rid of the debt. Whatever it takes, get rid of it, kill it, eliminate it. Form a plan, put time on the plan. That's the big thing. You need to know it's going to take three years. It's going to take five years. might scare the shit out of you tough. You need to scare yourself or you won't... Because here's what's going to happen. If you don't scare yourself and go, five years, God, how did I do this? Shit, that sucks. You don't do that... You're going to have that conversation with yourself five years from now, and you're going to go, ten years, shit. And you're going to be pushing it another ten years closer to your retirement. Actually, 15, because you lost five. You could have been working on it. And instead of that last ten years toward your retirement, which should be around 50, instead of 69, yeah, you should be able to retire by 50 if you start working at it when you're 20. 30 years is plenty of time, Right? 55, 60, whatever's right. I'm not telling you to retire. I'm saying you should be able to. There's a difference. Being 50 and working because you still feel like it is different than being 50 and working because you have to. I think you should be 40 and working because you feel like it. I really do. I think you can do that. That's why I gave you all the advice I gave you yesterday. But if you don't control debt, it'll never happen. And as I said yesterday, I've personally known people in their 70s Working jobs for just over minimum wage. Hard work. Because it's all anybody will let them do at that point. It's all they can find. You know, if they're not professionals with some kind of real high-end skill for management, by the time you're that old, even if you had some other technical expertise, nobody really wants you anymore. So you have to take shit work. I know it's wrong. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is. We need to accept it. So that's why we have to get rid of the debt. Because if you don't, that's where you end up. To do that today. And a lot of the disasters that come your way won't be disasters. They'll barely be speed bumps if you get rid of the debt. So get a debt elimination plan and work it and do it. And you cannot be a survivalist in debt. I'm sorry. You can be a survivalist with debt, but not in debt. With debt means I am paying it off. And I have a plan and I know when I'll make my last payment. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You figure out it's going to take three years. About two years and two months into it, you're going to have a big stack of money and a little stack of debt, and you're going to go, I don't want it anymore. And you're going to take some of that stack out of the money, and you're going to put it on the debt, and you're going to pay it off. You're going to go, holy crap, does that feel good. The next thing is you just need to really completely change uh, the, the, the momentum here so I don't go nuts on the debt. That's why I put this one next. You need to create a get-out-and-get-home plan. Now, part of that's been done with your documentation package, but you need to have a basic plan that everybody in the house agrees upon. If we have to leave the house and go somewhere and meet somewhere else, 
How is that going to happen? If only one person is home and they can't take everything we would normally take, what are the critical items that they'll take with them? Where will we meet? How will we will get there? That's important. What may be more important is a get-home plan. You need a plan with every member of the family. Where do you normally go? How do you normally get there? Who will you contact? How will you get home? When will you accept the fact you're not going to be able to get home? And if so, where are you going to go and how will we communicate with each other under those circumstances? That plan needs to be in place. You also need to know how to use a grill. You need to know how to cook on a grill because if the power goes out, that's the best way you can cook. And if you do something as simple as get a simple little gas grill, and it'll come with a propane tank, and if you go down to Home Depot and uh, they have a little cylinder exchange there, and you can also buy tanks without the exchange, and if you'll buy two tanks when you refill your tank, you'll have three tanks. And if every time a tank gets empty, you take it to Home Depot or U-Haul usually just fills them up, you don't have to, you don't have to exchange them, or wherever you go to get your propane, As soon as one gets empty, you refill it. You'll always have roughly two full and one probably close to full tank of propane. You want to add a fourth? Go ahead. That will cook stuff for a long freaking time, folks. If you add to that a simple little charcoal grill and, I don't know, ten bags of charcoal and some lighter fluid, you're in good situation as far as your cooking goes. But if you never cook on the grill, if you don't know how to cook on the grill got a problem. You also need to learn how to cook things on the grill that you normally wouldn't cook on the grill. I think cooking a steak on a grill is something most people can figure out as long as they're not meat freaks. And what I mean by meat freaks are the people that are like, it has a little bit of pink in it. Yes, it does, because that's how you cook meat. But the people that like freak out on meat and worry it's not cooked well enough and, and, and turn it into beef jerky uh, when it's not supposed to be, um, anybody other than them can figure out, take the steak, throw it on the grill, it sizzles sizzles long enough, flip it over so it's seared on both sides. Cook it till it's done to the level of your liking. Pull it off the grill, let it rest for about 10 minutes. Yes, people, let your meat rest after you cook it. If you cut it while it's screaming hot, all the juice flows out of it. That's why the meat that should be moist is dry. Uh, but if you, most people sort that out. Throwing a little bit of corn, wrapping it up in some foil, maybe some vegetables, things like that. Not hard to do, potatoes, things like that. But what about all that stuff like, you know, that you have stored? where you might have to cook with like a pot or a pan. You might want to occasionally experiment with that. You might want to grill your propane grill. You might want to have a side burner. If it doesn't, or if you want an additional side burner, you might want to go out and get one of those fryers. You set that on a really low temperature. It's good for cooking stews and soups. Uh, a lot of the stuff that, you know, the mountain house stuff, you know, you might need to cook that way. So think beyond, you know, ribs, pork chops, and steak and hamburgers. Because in a disaster, those things need to be eaten immediately because they're going to go bad. So think about how you would use those utensils, those tools, to be able to cook the things that you normally don't cook and occasionally experiment with it so that you gain the skill, so you have the skill before you need it. Because it's not a good time to be developing the skill when you actually need to rely upon it. I also think you should teach yourself at least two food preservation methods so that you can use them to increase your stored food. And if you say which two, I'd say pick any two you like, but if you want, in my opinion, that would be dehydration and canning. If you have those two together, and I know that there's two camps there, there's a canning camp and a dehydration camp, and both think that they're superior. The reality is both work really well, both have advantages and disadvantages. I love most food dehydrated. I love green beans. I do not like green beans when they're dehydrated. They look great when you dehydrate. They're all small and shriveled up, and boy, they store for years, and they come out okay, but... 
you know what, they don't come out in a way that I want to sit down and, you know, steam them until they're, 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 they're back to normal and drop a little dollop of butter and salt on them and just eat them as a side dish. Never happens. Uh, can them? That happens. Flash freezing's good too. Uh, and blanching and freezing is something else I, I do a lot of, but you can only rely on it so much because again, we're back to needing the power. So that's more the day-to-day -day use. For storables outside of the power grid, uh, we need to be learning some other uh, techniques. So to me, if you learn canning, because uh, green beans out of a can are, are pretty decent. Uh, however, things like um, carrots, peppers, uh, potatoes, they dehydrate beautifully. Um, but canned potatoes are good. So having the ability to, that's why I say two methods. Because the next step, is I want you to start visiting farmer's markets, and I want you to start buying fresh local produce, and I want you to start learning the cycles of harvest in your area and learn when the surplus is available. I think you should have a garden. I think you should garden. If you can't have a big garden, I think you should container garden. I've said that over and over again. Really not a statement for today, though, other than just a side note. I'm more concerned with you making sure you can eat. And gardening takes time to learn, time to master, effort, and not everybody's going to do it. And I, I, as much as I am a fan and an advocate, as much as I think everybody should do it, as much as I want you to do it, I'm a realist. But anybody can find a few farmer's markets, growing co-ops, and things like that in their area. So you form a relationship now with the local supplier of food. So if there's a shortage, you have the inside relationship. I'm going to take care of my original customers before my new customers, folks. That's reality. Right? If you're a long-term customer and you have a problem and I have a customer who is a potential customer uh, and I have to make it, I only have so much time and I'm not going to not take care of the potential new customer. But right now I have to make a choice. Which one will I help with this second? The existing customer. By the way, I was interviewed by AT&T for a sales job years ago and that one question was why I didn't get the job. Because they wanted somebody that would always prioritize new business. I've never changed my opinion even though I didn't get that job. And I never will change my opinion. The person paying you is most important. And most small business people, because they're not corporate idiots, they know that. And they're going to take care of the existing customer first. Because they've been loyal to you, so you owe them your loyalty back. Suggesting you establish that loyalty with people that can feed you right now. You're good for their business, and they're good for your lifestyle. But the other side of that is you'll start to realize that there's certain times of the year where you can go buy like a thousand zucchini squashes for like five bucks. I'm exaggerating, right? But you know what I'm saying. You'll be able to go buy green beans for 50 cents a pound. If you have the storage capability, if you have the techniques mastered, then you can go buy that food for dirt cheap, preserve it immediately, add it to your storage, and enhance that side of your house without spending a lot of money. That's why I recommend that you master at least two storage techniques and start doing that. I also want you to start talking to your neighbors. I don't necessarily want you to talk to them about preps and preservation and everything like that unless it comes up because there is, you know, people got to meet in the beginning. Everybody knows now. Well, if I'm going to do a podcast, everybody's going to know. All right? And my neighbors are so clueless, they don't know. Uh, but there's no way I can be a public figure and hide who I am and what I do and have credibility. So I have to take that risk. There is... A, a, a reason for you not to be like really out like put a sign in your house a prepper lives here I have lots of food you don't want to do that talking to your neighbors about it in time probably there's going to be neighbors you're going to want to mention it to and probably there's going to be neighbors you never want to mention it to and there's probably going to be neighbors you want to kind of get on board but what I'm talking about here 
for today, for now, is simply making sure you know their names, know who their kids are, do they go to school with your kids, what do they like, what do they just like, just form a relationship. Because if times get tough, you're going to need each other. And some of them may be completely useless and clueless in a situation at first during a panic, but every human being has value. And when you form a bond with people, you're able to put all those values together in a tough situation, and you're able to make the most of that tough situation. It's a hell of a lot easier than trying to do it with a bunch of strangers you've just lived around. So talk to your neighbors. As I get ready to wrap up here, one of the other things you really need to do is believe that you can do this. I think a lot of people, when they start looking at putting the household in order, is they, they just go, it's, it's too much, it's too hard, I can't do it. Paying off debt, getting extra food, storing water, oh my, it's just, it's, it's too, like this guy talked about so many things today, and this is supposed to be easy for beginners. Well, it starts with belief, and it starts with the fact that, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You do it one bite at a time, and eventually the elephant's gone. So, you take the steps I gave you today, you prioritize them for you. You notice I didn't say step one, step two, step three, no, because it's my plan. You have to have your own plan. So you take these steps and you put them in the order that you want to, and all of a sudden what you'll realize is most of them can be done really, really quick. The only limitation is funding. So then you prioritize based on how much funding you have available and which ones you want first, and you just work on them. And next thing you know, you've got all of these things I talked about done today. And you look at the world and you see it as a different place. It's not as scary anymore. Now, does that mean you're ready for the apocalypse? No. None of us will ever be ready for that type of, that, and when I say the apocalypse, I'm not necessarily talking about biblical. I'm talking about, you know, the end of the world as we know it, the big disaster, whatever form it takes, a giant pandemic, you know, huge, massive pandemic, electrical failure due to solar storm activity, uh, due to EMP attack, uh, warfare on a global, you know, World War III, maybe not all nuclear, but World War III, um, peak oil, you name it. Are you definitely ready for any of those things at this point, once we've gotten this done? No, that's why it's beginning. That's why it's getting in order. But 90% of what can go wrong for you, from job loss to regional disasters, you're as prepared as you generally can be. Now you just need to tweak it up. Maybe you add a generator. Maybe you, you, know, maybe you increase your food storage longevity. Maybe you go ahead and put that garden in. Maybe you go ahead and put that alternative energy in. But you form this base first. You form the base of the pyramid. Then you build the next level. And you have to believe that it can be done. You have to believe in your own ability to do it, or it'll never freaking happen. In fact, you might spend a lot of money and buy a bunch of crap and never actually use it right, never put it in any kind of shape or, or form, and never think about it, and you might end up in a disaster and have everything you need and not know how to use it, unless you believe you can get this done. So you've got to believe in it. And then the other thing is you have to focus on the results, not the battle. And what I mean by that is you have to realize that this is not... You know, you got to look at this a little bit like the right way to look at dieting and losing weight. Going on a diet never works. Even if you lose weight, what happens? You always put it back on. What works for people is a lifestyle choice. I'm going to change the way I live. I'm going to change what I eat forever. So I'm not going to worry about whether I lose 10 pounds in the first week because that's stupid anyway. I'm just going to change everything. I'm not even going to weigh myself for three, four months. I don't even care. I'm just going to change everything. And I'm going to do what I should be doing anyway. And a year from then, you hit that weight loss goal without even really paying attention to it. Much more powerful than the on-again, off-again, yo-yo diet bullshit that most people do. You have to look at prepping that way. I'm going to change the way I live 
from grasshopper to ant. I'm going to work at the lifestyle being what it should be anyway. I'm going to pretend that I have all the wisdom of my great-grandfather from 1900 and all the foresight that he had, and at the same time I'm blessed with the technology that's available in 2010. And I'm going to take those two worlds, and I'm going to put them together, and I'm going to not throw away the old wisdom just because I have new knowledge. I'm going to combine them, and I'm going to live my life forward that way. And what that eventually is going to do for me is 10 to 20 years from now, I'm going to look at a lifestyle that's built with so much redundancy in it that I don't need anybody else. And I can do it in five years if I really want to. But I'm not going to worry about whether it's going to take five years or 10 years or 20 years. I'm just going to worry about the eventual result. I'm going to realize that if I live this way, that at some point in my life, I'm going to look at my job and go, I don't need this. I don't need it. I don't need all of it anyway. Maybe I need half of my income. What would I really love to do with my life? I'm going to look at this and I'm going to realize that instead of believing in the false dream sold to me by American Express financial advisors on television of me and my wife when we're in our late 60s and in great shape, because that always happens, we're going to be walking down beaches holding our shoes with our pants rolled up to our knees and still vibrant and full of youth, because that's a lie. And I'm going to realize that if I do these things now, that I can make that happen a hell of a lot earlier, and I can actually have that soul-building time with my spouse, with my children, with my grandchildren, and with other people I want to be around at some point in my life. And if I don't do those things, if I just keep following the advice of society, if I just keep throwing 5 or 10% into my 401k, and I just keep living on the gerbil wheel and not worrying about debt, because one day, sunshines, rainbows are all going to fly out of my ass and make it happen for me, that I'm going to end up with a life where I'm riddled with financial cancer, and one disaster can come along and wipe me out. I have two choices of where my destination is. So instead of focusing on the battle, how hard it is today, I'm going to focus on the destination for tomorrow. I'm going to focus on being a 50-year-old man or woman that has a beautiful garden, a beautiful home, paid-for home, paid-for cars, paid-for everything, kids with established lifestyles that aren't living in debt for the rest of their life to pay back for an education they don't even use, and the ability to live my life on my own terms. And if 50 scares you, then do it by 40. And 40 scares you, do it by 35. No reason it can't be done today. 35 scares you, do it by 30. And you may be that commander that gets some information. Hey, the enemy's moving around the left flank. We're not going to make 30. Okay, we'll reset to 32. Yeah, we can't get that one last target. Can't do it. They're fortified with machine gun nests. It's going to take a little bit more effort. Fine, reset to 34. But if you don't, if you don't go aggressive from the beginning... You start resetting from 50 to 60. That's not the way to be. Because then you end up resetting from 60 to 70. Somewhere along the line, you or your spouse has a heart attack and dies. And that pretty image on the beach never happens. Survivalism is about so much more than the disaster. It's about avoiding the disaster. And here's the reality, people. Here's the reality. Most of the people in America today are creating their own disaster as they walk through life. And they end up poor and impoverished and alone in their old age. And it does not have to happen.
And then they blame the government, and then they blame the corporations. And they forget that they were the one that put the right foot in front of the left foot, and then the left foot in front of the right foot all the way through life. And they made every choice about what went in their mouth, what they bought, what they did, what they didn't do, all throughout their life. It was their choices, and it was their consequences. Fortunately for you, you know better, and you have a choice today of where that destination is. So please, no matter what you do, no matter what mechanism, no matter what you store, what you don't store, no matter what you plan for, what you don't plan for, focus on the destination and make the destination your goal. Remember that debt is measured in years, not dollars. Take the years back. Remember that bad choices and bad career moves and living in fear, that's all also measured in years, not dollars. Take the years back. Take the time back. Because we all have an hourglass with sand running through it. And eventually, for all of us, the last grain falls. And on that day, there will be a lot of things that you can love and be happy about and a lot of things you can regret. Very few of them will be measured in dollars. Most of them will be measured in time. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or you can think Nobody up there cares.